0: Happy Father's Day to everyone. hope it's been good this morning so far. Let's, let's take a moment and uh, not only pray in preparation for the hearing of God's Word, but let me take a moment and pray for fathers as well this morning. So let's, let's pray together. Father, we come... This morning, and we thank you that you are our great heavenly Father. You are good in all your ways, and in your goodness you have ordained and you have planned, you have purpose that we would have fathers and mothers. And we thank you this morning for our fathers that you have given us. And we pray for them, Lord. We pray that you would be with them as they seek to lead their families. We pray that they would be men of God. We pray they would protect, they provide, and they would lead. We pray that you would indeed help them as fathers to raise up children that would be men and women of God who love you, who seek your face, who worship you, who have seen in their own father, their parent, their father, a godliness that is not just uh, some sort of manufactured thing, but it's real, a real godliness in their life. A godliness that doesn't just come on Sundays, but a godliness that is about you and about the kingdom and about Christ every day. So, Father, thank you for our fathers and may you help us be men of God. And, Father, we pray as we come this morning before your word. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. We come recognizing that you are God, you are faithful, you are trustworthy, you are true in all your ways. You are always good. Always. Even when we face difficulties in this life, even when we face trials, and even when we face losses, even when we grieve, even when our hearts are broken, you are always good. You are always faithful. You are always, always true. And so we come before you, the faithful and the living God, and we come leaning on you, Alone, we come leaning wholly on you this morning and we pray that you would help us to lean on you this morning. We need you. We need your hand. We need your grace. We need you in every way. And so help us. Help us to be filled with faith this morning and that faith would turn to action and that our actions would be Flowing from faith. We pray this morning that you would lead those who may be here. Who don't know Christ. May you help lead them to faith in Christ. To trust wholly in him. And so we pray that you would lead us Lord. Lead us as individuals. Lead us as fathers. Lead us as families. Lead us as a church by faith. May we submit to all your good word before us this morning may you give us grace to receive it to hear it and to take it and to eat of it and so be with us help us lord we pray now in jesus name amen if you would go ahead and turn in your bibles to the gospel of john we will be starting or beginning a new chapter in this gospel so john chapter 18 and so we'll be in John 18 this morning, we'll be looking expressly at verses 1 through 12. So if you would turn there with me. I love being a father. I can say it is truly a privilege. It is a blessing in in many, many ways. And I would say even just this past week, you know, while we were at the SVC annual meeting... So we, when we when we went, we brought our youngest, which I guess he's down in the basement right now, but uh, little Ezra with us, and it was such a joy to have him there with us as well. You know, it was such a delight to see him, and you know his smile and and to hear his laugh. He's got to be one of the happiest little babies or children we've had of all of them. <laughs> so he's such a, it's such a, it's such a joy to see, you know, his simple enjoyment of life especially as we're taking in this meeting that's rather serious and you know people are standing on this or standing on that and then here's little Ezra you know giving this big old smile you know (laughs) and uh, it's just such a joy you know to to have him with us there and to see that simplicity of him and and so and and saying this too it, it won't be any surprise to you but of course you know little Ezra you know, what? eight months old, you know, he's totally dependent on us, isn't he? I mean, he needs us. I mean, if he needs to eat, he's not going to, you know, get up and go to the refrigerator and open the door and, like, pick what he wants and, you know, make a sandwich. He's not going to do that. We've got to help him, you know. You know, if, if, he, if he needs to get dressed, he's not going to, like, go to the dresser and pick out a few clothes, you know, and put them on. You know, we've got to do that. If his diaper needs to be changed, guess who's got to do that? <laughs> no. We've got to do that. So he's not going to do it himself. And so he is dependent on us in everything, really. You know, and it's funny, but it's easy to forget that, you know, really all, every single one of us in, in this room, we were all once that way. You know? And as we grow older, we begin to become, you know, a bit more independent, right? Sometimes for good, sometimes for bad. And and it is good that we do do learn those things. We need to learn, we need to grow, we need to do things for ourselves and become less dependent on others in some ways. Yet intermingled into all of that becomes kind of this perhaps troubling tendency, right? even a, a troubling kind of temptation is that we don't, we don't just like to be less dependent, right? We would rather what? Be independent. We'd rather, we'd rather be in control. <laughs> I want it done my way, right? And this is where it all kind of goes haywire. We tell ourselves, you know, I will make I will make my way. This is my life. I don't need anyone else. It must be done my way. So we want to be the boss. <laughs> Essentially, we want to be in control. And if we're honest, it's not, you know, I surrender all as we like to sing. It's, it's more like, yeah, right, I'm not surrendering anything. You know, the back of our minds like, yeah, I surrender all, but not really, you know. And so out of out of that kind of heart comes what? It comes pride. Comes anxiety. Comes fear. Comes anger. Not done my way. Afraid that it won't be done your way, or it won't even go as you hope it will go rivalry and more and so we go on and we live our lives essentially living like we're in control on well, view of this dangerous and constant temptation i wonder how might our lives look how might your life look how might it look different if we really believed that God is in control. we really believed it. Just consider that question. We haven't even gotten the passage yet. Just consider that question for yourself right now. How might your life look different? If you really, really, really believed God is in control. And you don't have to try to force it force that screw in there you know it's not for you to do what might that look like well I can tell you that would look a lot more like Christ it would look a lot more like Jesus in everything Jesus he lived under the father's word What was his desire? He aimed at pleasing the Father in all things. And we've seen this in this gospel, in John's gospel again and again. And we are going to see that here as well this morning in our passage. So let's let's see this. Let's read here beginning with verse 1 of chapter 18. So may we humbly come under his direction and his word, his authoritative and sufficient word this morning. So John 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. And so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you, have, you gave me I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear, his right ear, and the servant's name was Malchus. And so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? here, these 12 verses, and really now coming through this gospel, all of John has been building up to these chapters. So Jesus' words, his instruction, all of it comes to inform what lies ahead as we progress now into the closing chapters ...of the Gospel of John. And when Jesus said in John 8, 29... ...I always do the things that are pleasing to Him... ...that is the Father. When He said that, he He didn't say that to make us think... ...oh wow, you know, that's really nice that you do that. Yet when the rubber hits the road... ...He does something else entirely. No... Jesus, He does exactly as He said He would do. Jesus really meant what He said and said what He meant. Now here we see it in truth. And so in these verses we see several things then about Jesus and His approach to His coming cross. And so the first thing that we see here about Him is that Jesus, we see Jesus' complete knowledge. His complete knowledge. Knowledge. So following Jesus' farewell discourse and his prayer, he, along with the eleven, they go just east, so kind of barely outside of the city of Jerusalem, and they cross the Kidron Valley. And so from there, they go to a garden, and that garden you know well, or at least you know well from the other Gospels, which... We know as what? The Garden of Gethsemane or the Mount of Olives. And so the disciples, they, they go there often. Jesus goes there often. We see that here in John as well. He tells us that. And so Luke, he kind of helps us and tells us a bit more in this way or at least along the same line. So Luke 21, 37 to 38, he says that every day... Jesus was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. So in other words, we're getting kind of this glimpse into Jesus and his life and and, and his Uh, how he related to the disciples and that they would often go here to this place, the disciples and Jesus, and they would likely go there to this garden, not just in this one instance, but they would go here quite frequently, likely to rest, likely to pray, and perhaps even give the disciples instruction in various ways. So in that light, though, that would also mean that another of the disciples would know where they go. And who is that? It was Judas. That's right. Judas would know exactly then where to find Jesus because this is a place they would indeed go often. And this is what happens. So Judas, he comes and we see essentially here that the world rises against him, against Jesus. Christ. Now, of course, I'm not talking about the the literal world here, but we see something of this that, that John is doing. He's trying to show that there is this opposition from all angles against Jesus. Yet even so, who did Jesus come for? For God so loved the world, and now it is the world who is coming against him. Well, how do we see that here? Or at least that kind of hint There for us to say, see, the whole world is coming against the one who came to save it. We see it here with that. The Jews and the Gentiles alike, they come to arrest Jesus. So both here, the Roman soldiers and the Jewish temple police come along with Judas to arrest Christ. Now the word there, it's just one word. For band of soldiers. You know, we have three words to make up what the Greek does in one word, but that word is essentially cohort. Well, what in the world does that mean? Like, why does that matter? Well, this, a cohort generally within uh, Rome was something like a thousand soldiers. Now, that's a lot of people. For one man, especially. But I think here, as we look at the history, it's more likely that this was a smaller group of soldiers, probably around 600 or even more likely 200 soldiers. But even then, that is still a lot of soldiers. So when you're watching the, you know, Jesus different movies that are out there and you're thinking of this scenario and everything going on here, is that the way you thought of it? You know, some, you know, 200 soldiers, and not to mention the officers as well, the temple guard, and then Judas as well. So there's a lot of people coming to arrest Jesus here, and all this with Judas showing them the way. Now, I find this interesting. And you may not pick this up, and I don't know. I think John is. Is pointing to this, but not in a major way. But if you remember back in John 13 27, what happened with Judas? Well, the devil entered Judas. And I find it interesting that here we see that the devil is again trying to dissuade people from following God's word in the garden. You find that interesting? He's trying to silence the Word made flesh again. But even so, Genesis 3.15, even though the serpent will indeed bruise his heel, the Word will crush his head. He would not disobey God. He would obey Him to the full. He would be faithful to the end. He would not forsake God. He would be faithful all the way to the cross and crush his head. And so, notice then Jesus' response to all this. All these people coming. Does he run? Does he go and hide behind a bush? Does he maybe put someone else forward? Hey, Peter, get in there. You're the guy. You know, Thomas, come over here. No, you know, stand in my place. He does not do any of that. What does he do? He knew all things, and he stepped towards the cross anyway. So where do we see that? Well, in verse 1, we see something of this. You know, Jesus, he went out to Gethsemane, He went to this garden, all the while knowing that Judas knew the place. He was aware that Judas was going to betray him. He knew that Judas knew that he would go here regularly, yet he goes here anyway. And then in verse 4, we're told this expressly. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. We had complete knowledge of what was about to unfold, how they were going to malign him, how they were going to beat him, how they were going to nail him to the cross, yet he willingly stepped towards the cross and not away from it. No one forced his hand. He chose it. Now while we would avoid danger that we know is ahead. You know, like if we know robbers like right around the corner, you know, they may they're going to beat us and try to take something from us or even kill us, we would avoid that. Well, Jesus here, he knows what is coming and he went anyway and he did that for you and for me. And so what does he do? He leans into the Father's will and not away from it. Knowing all things, knowing the cross is before Him, He leans into it. He doesn't step back. He steps forward. And so also then, our right response before God in seeing all this is to be total trust. Trust. We aren't to wake up in the morning and take up the reins of the day and say, I am in control. I am the master of my fate. That's not the way of us. That's not to be our demeanor. Saints, we are to wake up and step up out of our beds and entrust ourselves to the sovereign and the living God We are not secularists. We do not live our lives as though there is no God, as though we have to be in control of everything that goes on in this world. God is in control, not us. This day is His. This life is His. This church is His. This world is His, not yours. And if you just let it do what it's supposed to do there, relief will come to your soul. At work, at home, with your family, with your children, and elsewhere, your relationships and everything else. Oh, God, I can trust in You. I cannot lean on my own understanding, but in all my ways acknowledge You. And all my paths will be straight, even in suffering even in sickness, even in death. I trust you. And so that our lives will declare to all, yes, I don't know what this day or the next may hold, but I know ultimately where it's headed. With this day, I cling to the God of the universe and I walk by the light of his word and so we are called to do that church Jesus here stepping forward into the will of his father trusting and walking in the light of his word and so fathers it's father's day are you living like that before your family Total trust in God. God has called you, fathers, to lead your family. You may not be a father here yet, but Lord willing, you may be one day. So take heart to this, hear this now. God has called you to lead your family. So, how are you modeling before them faith in God and Christ? How are they seeing that you love Christ? more than your job, more than your wife, more than them. They need to see that. They need to hear that from your mouth. I love Christ more than you. And you need to love Christ more than me. Our children need to hear that. They need to see that from you, fathers. They need to see that when your life is busy. Your faith is in Christ. They need to see that when you get sick, your faith is in Christ. They need to see as you walk through COVID that your faith is in Christ. When money is tight, where's your faith? When it comes to the church, where's your service to Christ? How are you modeling these things before them? How are you witnessing How are you showing them that you love God? How are you showing them that you will set aside time to spend in God's word and prayer, to seek his face above all else? Of course, we may well ask that question of every one of us here as well. Not just fathers, but all of us how are we showing the world and those around us our faith is in God and not ourselves, not these hands of ours and what I can do with them, not my education, not my own efforts and strength and skill, but my faith is in God. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. I want everyone to know that how are we showing the world that? And so we see Jesus here and then a second point we see here in regard to Jesus is in regard to Jesus' person. We see Jesus' majesty and his gracious power. So if you were alive and you were living at this time, you know, during Jesus' day and around this area, you might not know what to think about Jesus, but you would have surely heard of Jesus. If you were a Roman, you would have been like, I mean, who is this guy that everyone keeps Talking about, is he some kind of magic man? You know, some sort of magician? Maybe, is is he someone who's especially in tune with a deity of some sort? I mean, who is this guy? And so they would respond, perhaps something like that. But then, even among the Jews, you would have wondered, who is this man? And we even see that earlier in the gospel, don't we? We saw that some of the officers, they knew something was different about Jesus. And so after hearing him in John 7, they didn't arrest him, but they, they told the chief priests and the Pharisees, they said in John seven forty six, no one ever spoke like this man. And so all this then sets the stage for Jesus' unexpected answer here. So after he he steps forward, after he asks them who they are looking for and they answer him, Jesus tells them in verse five, I am he, or literally, ego emi. What in the world does that mean? <laughs> ego emi. It's I am. He doesn't just say it once here, but He says it again in verse 8, I told you that, literally, I am. No accident here. And this is not the first time that we have heard this or seen this in the gospel of John. And if we hadn't heard John 8.58 before, Abraham was, I am. We might not even see this here. If we hadn't, we might not even catch this point or even, you know, we wouldn't even... Uh, think twice about it. we might just think he's you know identifying himself like yeah i'm your, I'm your guy you know this i'm Jesus if you're looking for someone to rest that's me that's not all he is doing here well, what is he doing he's he's calling to mind the words that that uh, God told Moses in exodus three fourteen where he told Moses to tell the people of Israel that I am have sent you. And so we see that this is exactly then something of the way that they receive this, right? The words here at this it says in verse 6 they drew back and they fell to the ground. Now we don't know exactly what they were thinking here. Perhaps the Romans, they're thinking, oh my, you know, what is he going to do? Is he going to call the wrath down from some deity? Is he perhaps a deity himself? I mean, What's going to happen here? And the Jews are like, I am, I know exactly what that means. And they fall back as well. They may well have thought that all of heaven was going to come down upon them. But Jesus wasn't here for that. came to save and he would willingly take up his cross he says in John 10 for this reason the father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it up again no one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again this charge I have received from my father he was not going to the cross Because of 200 plus armed men. Nor because of 10,000 plus armed men. He went of his own accord. And so we see his divine person. We see his majesty here. But we also see his gracious power also. And so we see he means it. Now what in the world do I mean by that? What do you mean he means it? Well, he means verse 9. So he told the soldiers and the officers to let his disciples go. That would fulfill that word from John 6.39. That he would not lose one that the Father gave him. And he means it. He means it. He did not lose one physically here, nor spiritually. He protects them that they may go on and they may herald Christ. And that is exactly what they do. Each one of the apostles would go on to the end for Christ proclaiming his And so we see Jesus' greatness here, yet we also see His graciousness here. We see His love for His sheep. He would step forward. He would go to the cross. He would keep His sheep. He would ensure their internal good and yours also. So our right response then to this is to walk by faith. He is still the great I am. He is still keeping his sheep until the end. And so with our total trust in God and Christ, we need not stop there like trust alone, but go on to live and walk by that faith. Our God is in control and you can trust him. So what? So we need to see here what he did for you. We aren't trusting in the mere wind. We aren't trusting in fairies and wizards. We're trusting in the Lord of the universe. This world is not going on in chaos. It even now stands under the sovereign hand of God. And so, as you wholeheartedly trust Him, so go on and walk by faith through whatever may be ahead of you through through perhaps trials, through pains, through losses, through difficulties, through hurts, through blessings, through joys, through gifts, through gladnesses. Trust Him in it all, through it all, and with it all. And as we seek to walk by that faith, Recall those who have gone before you. Recall the faith of Noah. He built the ark. He left everything and followed his God. Recall the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were threatened with a fiery furnace if they would not bow before King Nebuchadnezzar's golden image. Yet they would trust in their God, even if it meant death. And so it was that they would answer the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So walk by faith, a real faith that entrusts everything to Him. Before such a Savior, though it be life, hard days, or your last hour, may you trust in Him, and so walk by faith in Him who so loved and gave His life for you. And if you're here and you don't know Christ this morning, hear it loud and clear He stepped forward. He did all this knowingly so he could save you, a sinner. That he would bear your sin upon himself in your place. So you are called to look to Christ by faith and to trust in him and believe. Lord, I'm a sinner. Save me, like the tax collector. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he'll save you. A third point we see here is Jesus' utter submission. And this is a constant as well throughout this Gospel. These last two verses we have here two contrasting objects before us a sword and a cup and so first we have here peter's sword now just just recall here what's going on remember what's what the context is there are some 200 plus men here and they're not like you know these kind of wimpy little guys who just came like man i hope i know how to fight when it comes to the moment you know These are guys who are well-trained, well-trained soldiers. They're not just like, you know, like, I hope I do well if it comes down to a fight. They know how to fight. They know how to handle a sword. They are armed. So in view of all that, I mean, that's just 200 on the Roman side. How, what do you think Peter will fare in this fight? (laughs) Not good. (laughs) I mean, not good at all. I mean, outside of divine intervention, Peter is a dead man. And maybe all of them are. But we do actually see divine intervention here. Jesus does step in and say, no, no. Put down the sword. heals Malchus's ear. So he just cuts off the ear of Malchus, the high priest servant. And presumably, I guess, Peter was kind of thinking here he would take on this whole group of people. Either that, or at least hold him off long enough to get Jesus out of there. But you see how, not to call Peter dumb here, but you kind of see that this is really kind of too much, isn't it, <laughs> Peter? But that sounds just like Peter, doesn't it, as well? Now, The problem with all this is that Jesus has made it clear that that is not his path. He has not called them to take up a sword, to take up the life of a sword, but a life of gospel proclamation. He has told them again and again that he is going to be lifted up. He is going away. Jesus does not need Peter's protection. So in the Gospel of Matthew... After, you know, telling Peter to put away his sword, Jesus says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? In other words, what Peter is doing here is like an ant trying to protect a lion. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, little ant, don't you know that that's a lion right there? <laughs> He doesn't need your protection. You need his protection. Jesus is not lacking in power here. And so Peter, he does not need to take up the reins. You don't either, right? You don't have to take up the reins and say, I got to deal with this thing. I got I to gotta figure this out and manipulate and get it to go my way. I think we well could see that Peter's sword is something like that. But instead, second, in contrast to that, we see Jesus' cup. So Jesus, he says in verse 11, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? What cup is that? It's the cup of suffering, it's the cross. It's his burial. It's death. It's God's wrath. God's wrath. Yes. And we see this idea of a cup of wrath spoken of in a similar way in Isaiah. So in view of God's judgment upon Israel, Isaiah, he writes in Isaiah 51, 17, Wake yourself. Wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. And that was God's judgment upon them for their sin. And yet here, though Jesus has done absolutely no wrong, He will drink this cup for us. He will drink it to the dregs. He will obey the Father to the last drop. He will take God's wrath upon himself in your place. Because, friends, you need to be honest. You deserve God's wrath forever. And that's not unjust, that's not a lacking of justice, that is justice fulfilled. That's what you deserve. That's what I deserve. Forever God's wrath. And so Jesus, when he takes this cup to his lips, he is taking on the wrath of God in your place. And so here then, our right response to all this is obedience. The fruit of true faith his humble submission, humble obedience to God's good word and will. And note here the manner of his taking it. You know, Jesus didn't, he didn't take the cup and kind of just say, well, fine then, I'll take it. You know, if I got to do it, I got to do it. That's not, that's not the way he did it. He didn't go like kicking and screaming, you know. You see him kind of with the Roman soldiers, you know, kicking and all this stuff. He didn't do any of that. How did He do it? Well, this, uh, That wasn't his, his manner here. He wasn't boisterous. He wasn't mean. He wasn't hateful. He wasn't hating. He wasn't angry. He wasn't reviling. He faced His cross knowing His Father. It's not just that we obey. It's how we obey as well. Right? not just doing his will it's entrusting your life to the God who's given you his will to do it's taking to heart the passage that Dennis read earlier from Romans 12 that's the demeanor of Christ that's the kind of demeanor we are to have also we would do well to remember that childlike dependence we had when we were young We would do well to learn more and to be more dependent on God and less dependent on ourselves. More faith, more trust, more walking out of that faith, more in obedience as a fruit of faith. So, listen to me here God's word is good, it's good. So, when he tells you to do something in his word, he is not standing there with a knife behind his back waiting for you. He's not lying to you. There is one who lies to you, and that is never, ever God. When you obey him, you're always doing the good thing. Always. The devil is a liar. The world lies to you. Sin lies to you. It always has a knife behind its back, but God does not. You can trust God through it all. Believe His word, church. We may well walk through all variety of things, but don't think for one second this takes away from the truthfulness, the trustworthiness, or the goodness of God. Trust Him. Walk by faith. Obey Him. And so fathers, mothers, men, women, boys and girls, embrace by faith all of God's good will. And do it. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning and we just pray, Lord, that we would see here with Jesus and his demeanor, his person, and our own call then. To walk in light of the model of Christ. Not seeing him as as someone detached or someone that, uh, in seeing his life, we aren't called to that kind of life as well. But instead, seeing even as 1 John calls us, that we are to walk in the same manner as he walked. And so help us, Father, to walk in a total trust in you. And some here, they maybe have just been doing that with their lives, you know taking the reins for themselves saying I've got to have it my way I've got to get it done this way and their lives are just filled with fear anxiety anger strife rivalry because they're not trusting in you and so I pray father for anyone here or all of us here or whoever here who needs to hear that this morning, we pray that you would help them to come before you and repent and to look to you by faith. May you help us, Father, each one of us to walk by faith, to obey your word, and to trust you with all we are. And so we ask, Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't know Christ, Or if there's anyone here who needs to respond to your word this morning, may you help us to respond to it. May you lead us, Father, in your word as we respond in song here, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.